Welcome to the Impact Masters Commission Bible Study Podcast. Join us as we study the Bible verse by verse. I'm your host, Pastor Josh Hawkins. We're going to have some deep, thoughtful, and hopefully helpful discussions to try and discover together what it means to be the followers of Jesus. Right. Well, I mean, nowadays, there's not even many people who have nice clothes, you know? When I was a kid, you had Sunday clothes, and then you had everyday clothes. But now, we don't even really do that, because I regularly preach just like this, you know? Um, Now, I do have nice clothes that I wear to, like, weddings and funerals, but that's the only time I... That is the only time I ever wear a tie. I I did a wedding recently... And I, I said to the bride, this right here, this tie I'm wearing means that I love you. You need to know that because I don't wear these. <laughs> and you asked me to wear these and, and I wouldn't do that for just anyone. I mean, I've done funerals without a tie on. Let me just say that, okay? Now, I will also say this, that I... If I'm if I'm going to a funeral or if I'm doing a funeral, I'm going to have tie on most of the time. Yeah. But the people that attend funerals come in. I went to a funeral last week where a man had on a leather jacket, like a tan leather jacket, like a suede jacket, and the back had a, a portrait, a painting of John Wayne. There was like tassels, you know, it's like the kind of cowboyish jack. And I was like, I don't feel like that's proper funeral attire. But, you know, I'm not here to judge. So anyway, I just was like, wow, I don't, that's interesting. But I mean, I've seen people come to funerals almost in sweatpants, which blows my mind, to be honest with you. That is, that I'm like, is, I'm like. Come on, you got to do something. Yeah, one of my dad's biggest pet peeves is when we're at Walmart and people are just in their PJs or whatever. Like, yeah, not I, even sweatpants, but like legit pajamas. Right. I don't wear sweatpants outside my house. I do think they're man's greatest invention, but I won't wear them to the store or to the whatever. My kids drive them crazy because they're like, Dad, you're just going to, to like drive through the drive through at McDonald's. You can wear sweatpants. And I'm like, no, I can't. So don't ask me to. I'm not going to. But, you know, you see people, like, shuffling around Walmart in their bunny slippers and stuff, and I'm just like, what? I don't... I'm not... What is... Yeah. That is, that is kind of That's wild. the Walmart in Crawfordsville, too, to you. Like, there are so many people... If you go to Crawf- if you go to Crawfordsville at, like, 8 o'clock at night and any time later at the Walmart there, there's people that, like, show up with, like, curlers in their hair and, like, pajamas with, like, mm-hmm. a bathrobe mm-hmm. on and even, like, yep. slippers. People watching is a hobby of mine. And let me say this to you, okay? If you really want to have some fun people watching, I have two words for you. Rural king. 
Do you mean sit outside Rural King? No, go in. For goodness sake, go in. Rural King is the best people watching because they also usually have their pets. I mean, I've been to Rural, I've been inside Rural King, but like. It's a farm and home store. That's like my dad. Like his second oh, heck yeah. That's my sister. We have a rural king in Angola. There is a rural king in Fort Wayne. It's out southwest. Um, they used, uh, uh, until COVID, they had free popcorn. So you could even be people watching while eating popcorn. It's like a movie. Yeah, yeah. Usually, they don't right now because of COVID. But, but they did. And they will again, I'm certain. Uh, and you can actually buy big 20-pound bags of popped popcorn. <laughs> I didn't um, know what this is. Yeah, no, I mean, it's fantastic. But but I go, but, <laughs> so when we moved, when we moved to Angola, and we, we live like not even a mile from Rural King, where we live right now. My son was nine years old. And I took him, I was like, you ready? We're going to go to Rural King. And he was just like, this is amazing. Because they have like, Big barrels full of like chicks and and bunnies and you know like and stuff and so there he's looking at those and then we're gonna go over and look and they have like the bottled pops like the Jones sodas kind of a thing which is of course the greatest thing in the world you know and so so he this was like his store and we were doing something else like two days later and then Ian walks in the door with a bag of popcorn and I'm like what are you doing he goes I just ran to Rural King. On his bike. He just drove his bike to Rural King, got popcorn, and came back. And we're like, dude, the thing is he had to he had to cross the largest street, the most busy street in Angola on his bike to get there. And we're like, you can't do that, dude. You can't just go over there and just drive. You did what and he's like, I just drove through the parking lots. We're like, this is not a good idea, kid. Anyway. It was really funny, and so now we'd be okay with it. But he was nine years old, and he didn't. I mean, it didn't even know his way around. You know, it's not cool. So when you say that people watching is fun because they have their pets, or I mean, when I've been to Royal King, what kind of people? Do you I want to say, I, I well, anybody. I mean, come on, it, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, you watch people with their dogs is when they're being the most themselves, you know. And have you ever noticed that when people have their dogs? You know, that's uh, that the, like all of the, con, you know, conventions kind of go out the window. Um, but uh, but uh, they, uh, my friend went to Rural King and actually saw a guy walk into Rural King with his dog sitting on his shoulder. Like a parrot, How like a pirate's parrot. It was like a little, like you know, Yorkshire Terrier or you know, one of those little, little tiny, tiny dogs. Um, I had a Yorkie when I was a kid, so I totally am. I'm there, but um, uh, no, stop, go away. I'm just saying, people watching at Rural King is absolutely the the best. It's a blast. If you're just bored, you know, and you, and you have nothing to do, 
I would highly suggest it. I'll have to do that. Because it sounds fun just to like... It is. It's so much fun. Just to go... I just go and I just walk around. And the thing about Rural King is the lights are never turned all the way up. It's like always like twilighty dark in there. I don't know why. I think they think they're saving money on electricity. But every time I go in there, it's like it's like only half the lights are on. Twilighty dark. And you know, and you walk around. And the other thing is like whenever they... Whenever they ring anybody up, it makes this weird like noise. I mean, anyway, I just I find the place fascinating. Uh, I don't actually do much shopping there, except they do have great candy and like Jones soda kind of yeah, and that I do buy that stuff. And I bought my son a remote control helicopter there because it was like twenty bucks and it was like this big old thing. And uh, actually, no, I bought myself the remote control helicopter. <laughs> I bought my son a drone. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, I still, although my dog tried to attack the remote control helicopter and got hit in the face with the blades, my she cannot deal with drones or helicopters or anything. She just freaks out. So whenever we use that kind of thing, she has to be put away. My cats have tried to do that, and I used to have parakeets growing up, and I wouldn't have parakeets. Anyway, let's pray, and then we will maybe, hopefully, possibly, Get to Sermon on the Mount today. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for a brand new year. We invite you to open our hearts to the voice of your spirit, to speak deeply to us. I ask for paradigm shifting reality. But you would crumble those things away. trust you, but we trust nothing else. Holy Spirit, I ask for the gift of repentance this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've been doing a lot of uh, uh, reading and thinking and, and well, I'm always doing that, but that's my favorite thing. That's that's. Uh, the number two reason why I am a pastor is because number one reason why is because Jesus made me. Um, I'm just kidding. No, the number one reason why is because I I am firmly convinced with everything inside of me that Jesus is the only the only person, the only thing worth giving my life to. Therefore, I'm giving my life to him. Period. And he, this is what he has me doing at this present time uh, is this. But the number two reason is. I love reading and thinking deeply and praying through issues and talking stuff out and contemplating. I'm, I, w- I would be totally happy by myself for weeks at a time, just seated in a room with a Bible and a, a, like a, a notepad and just, you know, uh, uh, enjoying uh, uh, digging through scripture might be nice to have some concordances and things like that too, but uh, not absolutely necessary. Um,
but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I love I love that, and I've been doing that. And and this this morning, I was listening to a podcast about the genealogical Adam and Eve, and we're not going to talk about this the whole time, but because um, because I could talk about it for the rest of our time together, I don't want to. But this guy has uh, he's he's a he's a genetic scientist, and he was talking about how. Um, uh, he, he was postulating a, th- a, 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 a an idea that it was entirely scientifically coherent to think of Adam and Eve as the ancestors of all human beings, even even though there's been a lot of genetic uh, discussion about how it's not possible. And he's talking about a six thousand years ago Adam and Eve. He is not talking about a uh, 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 you know, 150,000 years ago, Adam and Eve. Okay, because most people that would that would say that uh, uh, you know, most people that aren't aren't young Earth creationists. Okay, are you aware of what young Earth creationists are? Okay, Ken Ham and the Creation Museum and the whatever. Young Earth creationists. Okay, okay, because I'm not a young earth creationist, but a young earth creationist says that the earth is only like six, seven thousand years old, that we should take every single thing in that, that we read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as absolutely literal, that there's no poetic license there, that there's no, uh, that this is not song or myth or story, um, that this is a scientific account of creation. And that that's how old the Earth is, and that all of the scientific evidence that would speak otherwise is is you know Satan trying to trick us, um, etc. And that they and they've actually started whole new groups of scientists that are they're trying to prove that the Earth is young. But the problem is that's not how science works. And science doesn't start with an idea and try and prove that idea. Science starts with observation and then comes up with ideas based on what they see. So. I can't even really call them scientists because they already know what they're going to find. And that doesn't work. That's not how science works. But anyway, uh, I believe God created the world. I just don't know what that looks like. I don't know if evolution was involved. Maybe it was. Maybe God just ordered evolution and did it that way. I don't know if... So I'm what some people would call an old earth creationist, which means I... But the truth is I don't even know what label you'd put on me because I believe God created the world. I believe that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are true, but that doesn't mean that I think they're a scientific account of what happened at the beginning of humanity. So anyway, this guy was talking about an idea that he has that humanity did evolve along the lines of what evolutionary theorists look at, but he says that genetically there's no reason not to believe that God specifically, about six or 7,000 years ago, created Adam and Eve as new humans and built the garden and put them in it and that the whole story that's listed there in Genesis and on forward uh, um, is is quite literal but it's not speaking about the whole of the human race that after Adam and Eve were removed from the garden that they and their children began to uh, interbreed with the with humans that had evolved that were outside the garden does that make sense? Like there were humans outside the garden as well, but they had not been specially created by God. I mean, they were created by God, but through the series of evolution, etc. And there's biblical reasons to believe that. And he's saying it fits with the science, which I thought was fascinating. 
The reason I bring it up is not to, we're not going to talk through that because I'm not an expert on that at all, but I think it's a fascinating idea. The reason I bring it up is because it brings into this, it brings us to this thing, which is a major issue. It's a bone of contention, as they say, uh, in, in our discussion in around how we read the Bible and how we believe as Christians and what it looks like to be faithful as the people of God, believing what God has said to us, but not just closing our eyes and closing our ears and saying la 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 to the things that the world you know, is pointing at saying, the evidence doesn't say that though. And there is this thing that we have, and actually, as I was listening to that, I got a text message from a friend saying, hey, is there like a book, because we've been talking about several different passages that are quite obviously mistranslated in most English translations, that if you go back and look at the original language, etc., it's like, that's not what this says, not even close. Like, it's this, it's almost the opposite of what the English translation says if we're looking at the original language. And we've been talking about some of that stuff. And, and her question was, is there a book I can find or is there some resource I can find that has all of those listed? I'm like, no, that's not, no, there isn't. Uh, there's no place, there's no book like that. I mean, maybe that would be a good idea. Like, places the English translation led you wrong. That would be a good, that'd be a good book. Maybe it is out there, but no, I don't, I'm not aware of it. Anyway. We are in the Western, in the West, we are addicted to certainty. Because this is a very difficult, this is a, a, a very difficult place for us to stand when someone asks me a question such as, where did Cain's wife come from? Have you ever thought about that? So the Bible says that God drove him out of the garden, drove him out from, they had already been driven out of the garden. He drove Cain out away from his mother and father and brother, who uh, wasn't even born yet. There's a later brother. Um, and, Cain, and then it says, and Cain married this woman and started a city. It also says that Cain was worried that if anybody found him, they would kill him. So God set a mark on Cain so that he would... Well, who was he worried was going to kill him? Was he worried that Adam and Eve's other kids were going to kill him? And if they... if Why was he worried about that if God had driven him away from Adam and Eve's other kids? I'm saying I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because the Bible doesn't say. That's what I'm saying. And what we want, we want everything to be cut and dried and simple and easy. We want everything to just be black and white. And it's not. It's not. None of this stuff is. We're going to have to think and pray and wrestle and talk and study and think and pray and and talk and study. We're going to have to keep thinking, keep asking, keep pursuing, because none of this is 
is simple. There's very few things that are simple and easy and that I have quick, immediate answers for you about. Just very, very few. Questions like that, where did Cain's wife come from? The answer has to be, I don't know. Why? Because God didn't choose to include that as part of the story. Now, you'll have people that will say, well, of course, this is how it happened. But they are, they are making assumptions. When you assume, because these are the only humans on the earth, he must have married his sister. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that specifically. The Bible does not tell us where Cain's wife came from at all. It doesn't explain her existence. It doesn't tell us where she came from. We know Adam and Eve had daughters. We don't know any of their names. We're left with a question mark. And as the church, we need to be honest with ourselves and leave it a question mark. Now, can we have further discussion? Well, maybe it was this. Well, maybe it was that. Maybe he did marry one of his sisters. That's entirely possible. Maybe he married a human that wasn't a part of Adam's family that came from some other place. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We just don't know. Any other thing that we say other than I don't know, we are including assumptions that we are making. We may be making them based on the text. We may be making them based on things we know about the text. But they're still assumptions because the Bible does not say. And we do that all the time. And pastors do that all the time. And unfortunately, they don't usually tell you in the midst of a sermon, I don't really answer to this, but this is my possible fix for this problem. Most pastors don't do that because that doesn't fly well in a sermon. A sermon needs to be certain. Needs to be black and white, needs to be simple, needs to be something you can take home. We don't want people leaving with more questions than they came with. Uh, uh, the thing is, the sermon we're studying right now, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, everybody that left that sermon left with gigantic question marks. And Jesus did that on purpose. Jesus wanted you to be asking more questions when you, when you left than when you stayed. His goal was not to give you all the answers. His goal was to change your questions. He was going to give you some of the answers, but even more important to him was to shift the questions you were going to ask. Because our questions are what drive us. What does it look like to faithfully serve God? And Jesus said, in some of those situations, you're asking the wrong questions. We can go to that part, I think. Today we'll be skipping a little bit, but I think it would be a good place to go. All right? So, uh, this is Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 21. Is it 5 or 6? Yes, it's 5. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to the court. Okay, Jesus just quoted scripture twice. One of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill, you shall not commit murder. 
and then whoever murders shall be liable to the court. Those are those, Jesus quoted two scriptures, one from Exodus, one from Deuteronomy. And he may have been quoting the Deuteronomy version of the list of Ten Commandments, but it doesn't matter because there are two versions and they aren't the same. What are you going to do with that when you've got two versions of the Ten Commandments and they're not the same? They're similar, but they're nuanced. That's a really interesting thing because God, in the original Ten Commandments, Well, which one is it, God? The answer is, most people have decided that they're going to interpret that commandment based on their context. Thou shalt not kill except if your life is in mortal danger. Thou shalt not kill unless you're in a war, then it's fine. Thou shalt not kill, and they're putting the unless, unless, unless after, which is what happened in Deuteronomy, where they said, well, thou shalt not murder, because murder is different. You don't call killing in war murder, do you? No, we don't call it that. We call it war. So it's okay. Right? But is it? That sounds like... One of, that sounds like... One of those eternal questions that people ask was like, is killing like in war really okay? Here's the problem. Both of the things I just quoted you were from the Bible. Yeah. Now we don't argue with the Bible. Yeah. So what do I do? <laughs> I don't know. That's the whole point. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is trying to get to. You have heard it said. The, the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And then Jesus says something crazy, something mind-blowing, something unbelievable. He quotes the Bible twice, and he says, you have heard it said this. And he quotes the Bible. And then he says, but, now wait a minute, there's no buts after the Bible. Come on, Jesus. You don't get to but the Bible. But he does. I say to you, whoa, Jesus. Whoa, back. Whoa. The Bible says this, but I say, hold on. If any preacher in any church ever said that to you, I know what the Bible says, but I'm telling you, you need to leave that church immediately. But here's Jesus speaking to all the people on the mountainside saying, this is what the Bible says, but I say to you. That everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Whoa. Whoa. Jesus is the only one that gets to do this, guys. Because Jesus is the living word. And was Jesus negating thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not commit murder? Was he, was he saying either one of those was wrong? No. Jesus was upping the ante. Jesus wasn't saying, so go ahead and shoot people in the head. It's fine. No. He wasn't saying that's wrong. Jesus was ratcheting it up. 
it's not enough to leave that law, thou shalt not murder, and just leave it there. Because that means I can do everything else I want to you as long as I don't murder you and we're fine. You have no complaints, right? Jesus was saying, no, that's not good enough. Not good enough. Thou shalt not murder is absolute baseline. Let's take it further. Because are there ways that you murder someone's feelings? Are there ways you murder someone's being by looking at them and saying, you're not good for anything? Are, you, are there ways that you discount someone's character, someone's personality, who they are, that you devalue them as a human being that are tantamount to murder? The answer is yes, and Jesus says none of them are okay. When you negate someone else's humanity, you are all but killing them. You are reducing them to less than human. And Jesus is saying, that's not okay. I'm not okay with it. So, so, so how I understand it, if I, I want to make sure I'm hearing you right. So it's saying that Jesus said um, he was just taking it a step further than just killing people bang, bang, um, or stab, stab. He was saying that um, it's not okay to kill someone's confidence. It's not okay to kill their emotions or right. like the other stuff besides shoot, shoot, yeah. bang, bang. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty. Whoever says to his brother, you fool, is on his way to destruction. Raka, empty head, is the, the direct translation. You empty head. I've had people say that to me on Facebook. I want to answer back, well, you're on your way to hell, so FYI. <laughs> I didn't do that, though. <laughs> and then he continues, therefore, therefore, because that's true, because there's more than one way to kill a person. If you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering, therefore, before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. He's saying your connection to the people around you So look how Jesus is elevating our relationship with each other. He says, You're, you are bringing your offering to God. You are bringing the worship God deserves the offering that is commanded in the law to bring. But before you bring it, you better fix what's broken between you and that guy over there. Because if this isn't right, then this isn't right. Imagine what would happen if the church took this seriously. If we refuse to come and sing in a worship service or give in the offering until we had been reconciled or done everything we ourselves could do to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
with our brothers and sisters by blood, with other human beings? What if it was more important to us that our relationships with the human beings that we are around than it is that we tick off some religious responsibility? That's why often when we would begin like winter camp or some retreat that we were doing when I was a youth pastor, I would begin with this discussion and I would say, if there is a person in this room that you have a broken relationship with, before we pursue God together, we need to fix it right now so I'm going to give you the next two hours to go and find that guy that girl to apologize and to forgive so that you can pursue God with a free conscience I got so many people mad at me I remember preaching this one day in church and uh, this woman stood up in the middle of the service, grabs her coat and literally stomps out of the room like as loud as she could. And everybody in the room, you know, there's maybe a hundred people in the room and they're all kind of like, because they all know her. And she's weeping as she leaves, right? I called her that day after church and she said I'm almost to your house <laughs> it's like oh boy here we go and she was coming she wanted to talk to me and she started telling me that the Holy Spirit had been after her to forgive her father for weeks months years he had been terrible to her he had uh, abused her etc and she didn't think it would ever be possible for her to have a relationship with him again but she had to forgive him regardless and here I am that Sunday preaching this and she was furious she said I let I got up and I left and the Lord I just ended up my dad's house and he had to she had to go in and have this conversation with him that she's been not wanting to have for a long long time and the Lord really did some awesome stuff. And I'll tell you right now, that was not the end of that story. She, it took her another three to four months to really be, to really feel like she had forgiven him completely. She did the thing. She went to him. She told him, I forgive you for what you did to me. But it took her another three or four months of processing with the Lord and with her small group uh, through this to, for her to actually feel like she had forgiven her dad because forgiveness is a choice that begins a process but Jesus says leave your offering at the altar and go fix your relationship with the guy now I love what he says here because this is this is again Jesus is not kidding around 
because he doesn't say if you have something against your brother. He says, if you realize your brother has something against you. And again, that's a whole nother level. It's one thing where I'm going to go and I have, I have hurt feelings. So I'm going to say to you, I'm sorry. You know, I forgive you, whatever. And then I feel better. No, this is about if you have something against me and I know it, I've got to pursue you about that. Do we do this? Does anybody actually do this? No. <laughs> no. We don't. You want to know why? Because we have taken the Sermon on the Mount and we've made it unimportant. We've put it out there and said, no, Jesus was just putting things out of our ability to... No, no, Jesus was serious. Jesus meant it. Jesus wasn't kidding. Jesus wants us to prioritize our relationships with other human beings. He is not okay when those relationships are broken. And he says, don't even attempt a relationship with God until your relationship with other people has been fixed. Now, he doesn't, I don't think he means that like, you know, if we're coming back, like, like God's going to reject us because a relationship with other people is broken. But I think he's saying we need to prioritize our relationship with other people. We need to put it on the same level of importance as our relationship with each other. Are you recognizing what he is saying? He is saying the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He is saying these two commandments are connected, interwoven, and they cannot be split apart. You cannot love God without loving your brother. It's, uh, our, the apostle John said the same thing. In 1 John, if you say you love your brother... But you, or if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. How can you love God who you can't see when you don't love your brother who you do see? John was just riffing on the Sermon on the Mount. Because he was there on the Mount listening. Verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent. While uh, your opponent at law, in other words, someone that is suing you or that you are suing. While you are on with him on the way to the court so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge. And the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is absolutely astounded that Christian people were suing one another and taking each other to court. He couldn't believe it. He's like, you, we're going to sit in judgment over angels, and you're going to a pagan court to fix a disagreement between two Christian brothers who should love each other more than any stupid financial problem that has happened. Paul couldn't believe it. 
Happens all the time. Happens all the time. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, there he is doing it again, Jesus. That everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. Whoa. Tell me right now, why is it a sin for a man to look at a woman with lustful intent? I should say, a man to look at a woman who's not his wife. Why? By the way, that doesn't mean that you just get to lust after your spouse forever. That's not, that's not, how, that's not what sex is, but we'll talk about that a little more another time. Why is it Think, tell me, why is pornography a sin? Because it, um, I would say because it gives, like, the lusting thing, it gives you a, um, a desire that you're, that, you know, you probably, you know, you more than likely can't have with that, with that woman. Okay, so it's coveting. Yeah. That's 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 a good point. I I literally just was listening. I can't even remember the the preacher's name, but I think it's like he pastors at some church in Atlanta, uh-huh. and uh, he had a entire. He's like one of those fiery, like screaming at the top of his lungs preacher, and he preached a sermon about uh, coveted, coveted covetousness. Covetousness. It's a horrible night, horrible word, but that's the word. Yeah. Covetousness. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a big deal. It was crazy. Yeah, I preached on "Thou shalt not covet" one day, and right before I did, the church had bought me my dream guitar that I had been coveting. Oh. And so, I said, "I don't have to covet anymore because you bought me the guitar." But <laughs> praise the Lord, He's delivered me from my sin. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but why is covetousness a sin? Well, okay. Is it really a sin to want something you don't have all the time? I mean, you can, you can. There you go. Covetousness is a sin because it's idolatry. And lust is a sin because it's idolatry. Because what we do is we make a decision that I will be satisfied by receiving that thing or being with that person. When our soul satisfaction does not come from that, our soul satisfaction comes from God. When we replace God as as the center of our contentment, then we have put something in his place. And whether that be a woman you want to have sex with or a man you want to have sex with, or whether that be something you want, you know, that's... Go ahead. 
Oh, I thought you were saying something. Anyway, doesn't matter what it is. Okay, but there's another reason for this. So that is the that is the love the Lord your God part of why covetousness and lustfulness are sins. But what's the love your neighbor as yourself part that makes that a sin? Lust in particular. Because it, because if you because if you're loving God, but then you're but then your neighbor just got like a 70 inch flat screen TV and, and you want it, right. that's not loving your neighbor. Right, because you because you want to take it from him, right? Yeah. And that wouldn't be good to your neighbor. But what about lust? <laughs> when you look at a woman in order to lust after her, I'm not the, not, let me let me clarify real quick. Because we are big bags of chemicals. Okay, are you aware of this? That's what you are. You're a big bag of chemicals. Okay, and those chemicals, they do not, they do not obey us very well. And that tendency is what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh. Okay, it's because we are, we are on one level. I hate to say this, but it's the truth. We are animals. Okay, we have physical bodies uh, that operate according to physics and chemistry. Are you with me right now? Aren't you guys on a 21 day fast right now? Yeah. Are you Daniel fasting? No. no. Thank God. Wait, You're not? We're, no. Oh, they always used to make you guys no. do a Daniel fast. Our only food fast is the last five days of the 21 day. Oh, they have, they have. And all it is, is yeah. it's a no meats, no sweets. Well, right. But, and, and that's basically a Daniel fast. No, oh, so that is more. a Daniel fast. We're not doing an official Daniel fast. We're doing like the food. Like when you said no meats, no sweets, that's basically Daniel fast. But we're just not doing it the whole 21 days. Okay. Just the last five. Okay. Well, that's good to know because I always feel bad when you're Daniel fasting and I bring coffee in here and everybody's like, but, and that's not coffee, it's chai. But you wouldn't be able to have that either. But it's true though. But so, so. Where was I going with that? I, I, I was, oh. When you are hungry and you smell food, your mouth begins to water. There isn't anything you can do about that. That's just a physical reaction. It's a chemical reaction. You have no control over that. Okay? Zero. Okay? And the same thing happens when you have a certain amount of testosterone in your body. This is both men and women, by the way. And someone of the opposite sex that is attractive to you, attractive to whatever your body decides is attractive, walks in front of you in a certain way, your body is gonna physically react. There's a whole range of physical reactions which take place when you are in proximity to or, be, or seeing or whatever uh, a person who your physicality is sexually attracted to. Jesus is not talking about that. Jesus is not talking about seeing a woman walk by and being like, Wow, God, you did a good job. And then keep walking. Okay, keep walking. This is the way that I was taught when I was a kid. Was It's one thing if a bird lands on your head. It's another if you build it a nest. <laughs> okay. Okay, so if a, if a lustful thought goes through your brain, which, guys, apparently happens about every eight seconds for us uh, on average. Uh, yeah, I know, ladies. You don't even know what it's like to have this amount of testosterone in your bodies. It's not pleasant. Um, uh, it's just true. It's just reality. I'm not saying women don't have lustful thoughts. They just don't have as many as we do. Um, uh, it's medically, medically real. Uh, 
uh, because those thoughts come from testosterone, which is the primary hormonal uh, driver in the male body. Um, and, and women have testosterone, just not nearly as much uh, as men. So um, anyway, what was I saying? Okay, so so a lustful thought goes through your head. It's one thing if you go, whoa, okay, uh, next, right? And just kind of, just gonna keep walking. Jesus, I gotta think about Jesus now, um, right? And it's another if you're like, well, that was a per, that was a particularly tantalizing thought, and let's expand on that. You engage your imagination to expand that thought to bring it to you know whatever because it's gonna stir up feelings because I'm gonna say something a little uh, a little controversial but that won't be anything new we all like being horny okay it's, it's just a reality of human existence it is there's this is well i'm just saying i mean there, there's definitely i might get booed off a stage if i said that on a sunday morning but uh, but it's just the truth it's the truth which is why there are strip clubs which is why there is pornography which is why all of this stuff is such a booming business all over the planet which by the way pornography is america's number one export what oh yes export is what we send to other what countries. we send to other countries and we are Ooh. the porn factory for the rest of the planet aren't you proud no no i'm not <laughs> that's terrible it is horrifying and disgusting and terrible but it is true when you look at it like i think did we talk about it in guys group last year that like when when it comes to when it comes to like pornography, like didn't they didn't like our John Brevere series say something like you have to think about it in a way like that's somebody's son or that's somebody's daughter. Exactly. And that's where I'm trying to get is because the reason this is a sin is not because you shouldn't want to have sex. God created sex. God is not uncomfortable with sex. God thinks sex is a great thing Amen. in the context for which he created it. Amen. I'm just saying. Yeah. And if you're uncomfortable with the word sex, you're in the wrong class. Because we're going to spend the next six months talking about... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> talking about why God created sex. <laughs> but I'm not uncomfortable talking about it because the Bible talks about it a lot. And the Bible is very pro-sex. If it's in the context for which God created it. Like Song of Solomon. Well, the way I like to talk about it is, is actually I was in this room the first time I ever used this metaphor, teaching a, uh, a Sunday school class about, and we were gonna talk about sex. And I said, I said this, sex is like gasoline, okay? Inside of an engine, gasoline is powerful, Gasoline makes an engine work. Engines don't work without gasoline. You would be, you would agree with me, correct? Inside of a gasoline engine, gasoline is necessary and powerful and important, and the engine doesn't work without gasoline. Outside of an engine, it causes fires, it explodes, it is carcinogenic, okay? It's bad. Outside of an engine, gasoline, not good. Inside of an engine, gasoline, absolutely necessary. Well, sex is like gasoline because inside of marriage, sex is powerful and important and it's what makes marriage work. It's just the truth. Okay, that's not all that marriage is about, but I don't know that marriage would be possible without sex. I'm just going to say it that way because that's the truth. Okay? There are some days when that is the only thing two people can agree on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. Um, 
Because it's the truth. Anyway, but outside of marriage, which is the context for which it was created, sex is messy and destructive, causes problems and diseases. It does not belong anywhere except in this engine God created it because sex is for marriage. Marriage is not for sex. Does it make sense? Okay. And when you, when a person looks at another person as a sex object, because I'm not in the relationship with that person within which sex is permissible and, and good. So I'm looking at someone that I cannot have sex with, but I am wanting to have sex with them. I am degrading their humanity. I'm stealing from their personhood. I have, here's a big word for you today, ready? Commodified that person. They have become an object and they're no longer a person. Does that make sense? When you become the object that satisfies my desire, you are no longer a person. And by the way, sex inside of marriage doesn't work that way either. Husbands and wives are not the object that satisfies my desire. No, a husband or a wife is a person to whom I have committed to live my life with you for the rest of my life. And sex helps make that work. And sex makes kids. But marriage is about my commitment to you. So even if sex is not possible inside of our marriage. And there are whole seasons of married life where that's the case, by the way. After a baby is born, you're not supposed to have sex again for six weeks at least. It's the longest six weeks of anyone's life. I'm telling you right now. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. <laughs> I'm not... I've never heard that before. Years you spent before you got married? <laughs> yes. Because, you know, once you get used to having something in your world and then it's gone, <laughs> okay? There's some people that can't have sex at all during pregnancy. So that's like a year. I, uh, like, like my youth pastor back at home, like, he was married and then his, like, wife was, um, not being faithful and so they when they separated I was just like in my brain I was like yeah it's tough tell you right tough. tell you right now it's not easy just I'm just saying so but that is not what your spouse is your spouse is not your sexual outlet your spouse is your spouse a person to whom your soul and your physical body have been knit they are one with you and you are, we are taught as husbands to love our wives and give ourselves up for her. To love her as Christ loves the church. Sex is a part of that equation, but it is a very, very small part of human life and we make it this gigantic all important thing especially in this country where like sex is like such a big deal well you know what it's not it's not i mean it is it's a powerful thing but it is if like if you looked at i don't even know just 
the amount of time that we spend on this thing, which is such a small reality. And Jesus says, if you're looking at someone else you, and you commodify them, you make them. So we can take it out of the sexual realm and just talk about, okay, if you look at someone else, like the person that, you know, made my chai, right? And if I drive through the, if I drive through the, the thing and I look at them as just a vending machine that is there to give me my chai, have I loved them as myself? No, no I've not. I have devalued their humanity, their person. Which is why you should be generous to waiters and waitresses. Which is why you should be kind to every person. Even if they're being extremely rude to you, you don't know their story, you don't know their life, you don't know what they've gone through, they need to experience some just general personhood love. You are a human being and therefore I respect love you. Which is why when there's someone on the opposite side of any political debate, of any ideological debate, of anything, where what they are saying, I watched the movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, The American President. Anybody ever seen that? It's a great movie, you should see it. Anyway, he stands up at the end of the movie and he's like the President of the United States. And he says, America's tough. Because if you say you want free speech, that means that you have to fight with all of your all that you are to give free speech to the person who's standing across the room that is going to say things that you would spend your entire life fighting against. But because you're an American and they're an American, you free speech for you means free speech for them. And as soon as you try and shut someone up, then you are shutting yourself up as well. That's what you're doing. You're removing the right to free speech from anyone. That means you're removing your right to free speech. Does that make sense? I didn't say it as good as he did, but he had Aaron Sorkin to write his thing, and I didn't. Um, so we as people, and I have seen this over and over again, where some, where even a leader in the church, I heard it yesterday, points at someone with a dis- different point of view, a different biblical uh, interpretation, this is, they're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not even talking about people outside the church. We're talking about people inside the church. And right now in Georgia, there is a pastor named Raphael Warnock who is running on the Democratic ticket for president, or for president, <laughs> for Senate. Okay, and today is the day of the big vote where Georgia decides whether we're going to have a Democratic Senate or a Republican Senate. Pray. I'm not telling you how to pray, just pray, okay? Pray that God's will is done, and it's, you know, that this... Anyway, pray. Okay. Raphael Warnock, man, he's a good preacher. If you've never heard him preach, he's a great preacher. Um, but he's very, he's pretty liberal, politically. Uh, he's pro-choice. Uh, he is all about... Uh, what we call what's called liberation theology and and um and he's a social justice warrior right what do you mean what's liberation theology i don't have time oh. <laughs> uh, we can talk about it another time but, but i don't have time right now general idea is that god the god of exodus is all about freeing the slaves both yesterday today and forever okay that's the general idea which we can agree with right yeah but where they take that often 
There's a lot of people that have some real issues with it. So, and I heard another pastor say of him, of Pastor Warnock, that he was not a Christian, that he was sent by Satan. Basically made a threat against this pastor's life. Very racist threat. When I look at these two men, there may be things that I disagree with Pastor Warnock about, but the more evil of the two is the one over here who is pointing at someone else, a fellow brother in Christ, someone who claims Jesus as their Savior. And guess what? You don't get to judge their salvation because you don't know. And I don't get to judge their salvation because I don't know. And I can disagree with P Pastor Warnock all day long, but I still have to call him brother because I didn't call him. Jesus did. I didn't save him. Jesus did. And we agree on Jesus. So that's my brother. And we can have a talk about how my politics are different than his. We can have that discussion. But it has to happen in the context of my brotherhood with him. Because that's who he is. But the minute that one of ours says to someone else in this kingdom, you're from Satan, you're from hell, and I wish you would die, I'm sorry, I question the other guy's salvation. Now, I probably shouldn't do that. I should probably say, you're my brother too. And he is. But what he has said is categorically wrong and absolutely against what we're talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. We can't do it. We cannot, we cannot steal someone's personhood. And any set of ideas that we come up with to add in to love God, love neighbor had better agree with love God, love neighbor and had better not steal anyone's personhood or else we have lost the thread Jesus loves humans, all of them. And we don't get to dehumanize humans. We don't get to do it. We don't get to not love humans. Even if they would like to shoot us in the head, even if they would like to blow us up, even if they want to wipe us off the face of the earth, we don't get to not love them. Because as he was being nailed to the cross, what did Jesus say? Forgive them for they don't know what they do. If Jesus had reason to hate anybody, it was the guy that was shoving an iron nail through his wrist. But he's saying, Father, forgive him. These people were committing deicide. Killing God, that's what that means. There is no sin greater than that. That is what they were doing, and Jesus is crying out for their forgiveness. Do we have any right to do anything less? And that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, when he says, you don't get to look at your brother and say they're good for nothing. And you don't get to look at a, a sister in God and see her as just a walking vagina. I said it, said the V word. It's not a bad word, y'all. It's not a bad word, y'all. 
People are not sex objects. They're humans. People just like you with feelings and thoughts and value and worth. And it's a value and worth that God established and established and God upholds. And the minute we lose sight of their value and worth, we've lost sight of the image of God and our relationship with God is threatened. So you're so I, so you're saying that like if like so the reason you use that Reverend Warnock guy is that you you may not we may not agree on like his politics, but we but we can agree that like Jesus saved like Jesus saved those people and like if like if like somebody who who believes like that so that's kind of saying like i actually kind of like that because that's kind of like people that's really what you said that jesus doesn't have a political party that like it's like um the thing we can all agree on is jesus because we didn't save them jesus did and everything else i would even be willing to say jesus disagrees with some of his political stances. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love him. It doesn't mean he's not saved. Yeah. I don't know if Jesus disagrees with his political stances, by the way. Yeah. He may not. I don't know. I don't even know his political stances all that well. I've only heard a couple of speeches by him. Yeah. Okay. I don't think Jesus is pro-choice. That's my personal opinion. I think the Bible's pretty clear on that, that we shouldn't be slaughtering infants in the womb. I don't think that's okay. I think I have lots of biblical evidence for that. Yeah. Pastor Warnock would have a whole different thing to say about that. Because Pastor Warnock is going to say, he would probably say that he agrees with me that we shouldn't slaughter innocents in the womb, but he would probably also say that I don't get to tell women what to do with their bodies. Yeah. Which I would have to agree with him there too. The problem is I just tend to value the, the life of the innocent one in this woman's womb over her choice about what she does with her body. Yeah. And I would say the choice that she made to have sex with someone is negated her choice of whether or not she could keep that child. That's where I stand on that issue. But I will admit it is a complex issue and I will admit there's a lot of things that we need to talk about and I will admit that I don't even, that, that I'm not a female, I don't have a uterus. I'm just naming female body parts now. I, I, I am, I'm not a female, I don't have a uterus, so I probably shouldn't say very much about this topic in the first place. I can't be inside of a, fe- of, a, of a woman's experience of the world, and so I should probably shut up. Anyway, all right. Any last questions? Comments? You look like you have a comment. I just, being at my home church this weekend, I was just like, God really loves everybody, huh? Amen. Our past, like our lead pastor, was standing with us, and this one guy who we were talking was talking about how he had COVID, and then the next day he didn't, and how it was all a hoax, and that Joe Biden was the leader of the evil people. And I was like, and my pastor was like, really? Yeah. And I was just like, you're just saying this, like, and you love the same God that I do, and you read the same Bible that I do. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. And I have a lot of problems with my brother too. And I'm just, I told my mom, I was like, I love him, but I don't like him. I don't like what he does. I don't like when he talks because he just does not, he doesn't, it's just like, I don't, 
it's so hard for me to believe that those people are like read the same bible that i do with if they believe i mean like i agree with you it's just the fact that those people believe that god saved them and he rose from the dead yeah and that's what i have to that's the middle ground that i have to come what to. really bugs me you know we talked in the beginning about this this addiction to certainty and even if i hold a view strongly and i would fight with you all day about it you know we'll we'll have a heated debate about a topic at the end of the day i have to be willing to say i might be wrong and what bugs me the most about people like the guy that you mentioned is just how certain they are. That you could not get that guy to say, most likely. At least in, and when I have conversations with guys like that, on either side of the spectrum, whatever side, whatever opinion we're talking about, if they're talking about aliens are running the United States government, okay? Uh, uh, which might be true. I mean, or aliens I'm just, but, <laughs> Be rich and it's a six. It's possible. Um, uh, no, but uh, no, we're not talking about Nephilim today. We have no time. Um, oh, uh, <laughs> um, we'll have that conversation at one at some point. I promise. <laughs> the first year still haven't heard your okay. Nephilim. Okay, just need to go read Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. Will change your world. Okay, uh, they're not willing to make that caveat. They're not willing to say, this is what I believe, but I admit mm -hmm. I might be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we should all be humble enough to be able to do that. This is how I read it. This is how I understand it. I may be completely wrong. I think we should all be willing to leave just at least that little thing out there. Because I have taught things passionately. Then years later, I went back and said, ooh, wish I hadn't done that. I was a full five-point Calvinist for about two years. Now, you may not even know what that is. But I taught Calvinism passionately. And now I look back at that, and I'm like, ooh, can I just delete all evidence of that out of the world that I ever taught that? Oh, gross. I believed it with my whole heart at the time. Now I'm going, well, I was such an idiot. <laughs> I, know the, I know what led me to it, but I also know what led me out of it. All right. So is Calvinism another re religion or something no. like that, or another like, belief a, system? It is a part of Christianity. It is oh. a group of Christians. It is. Because the reason I ask is because well, after our debate was over, Pierce um, told me, um, and Pastor Caleb Jordan was telling me um, to look into Calvinism because, like, I, because because he told me the Islamists of God are largely Armenian. Yes. And he he told they were telling me both to look into Calvinism, and I did a little bit, and it's when it talked about predestination that is what I feel like I I don't. When when you when you, as soon as you're born, like it's like okay, God predestined you for no. hell, or God predestined before you were ever born, before the foundations of the earth. Oh, so like even before God created the earth. Yes. So so like I'm gonna use Jericho. God and His perfect foreknowledge. All right, I'm gonna close officially because it's after 11:30. Thank you, Jesus. We love you.
Teach us to love each other. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen.